You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out how to deal with requests for emergency contraception. With efficacy at its best, we predict one pregnancy with a copper intrauterine device, five pregnancies with eulipristal, and approximately ten with levonorgestrel. But before that... The recent budget in the UK has made cigarettes more expensive. With research showing that increased price can be a good way to lower consumption, more people may be deciding to kick the habit. But how is best to do it? A recent paper published on BMJ.com looks to test the efficacy of both nicotine replacement therapy and extra counselling against the background of the English NHS's quitline. Earlier this week, I talked to one of the authors, Tim Coleman, who's a professor of primary care at the UK Centre for Tobacco Control Studies at the University of Nottingham Medical School. I started by asking him to explain what service Quitline provides. Really, what the standard support package is, is that when people contact the Quitline, and that can be by the internet, it can be by email or it can be by phone, they're offered information materials Um, which give them an idea about how they might stop smoking. They're also, if they want it, given details of how to access local NHS stop smoking services, which might operate in people's local areas. And if people say that they do want to stop smoking and they've contacted the quitline by telephone, then they get some relatively basic counselling and advice about stopping smoking. So you've designed a study to see if nicotine replacement therapy and extra counselling were effective, more effective on top of this sort of base level of quitline support. So could you explain your study to us? Yeah, we thought it would be extremely useful to see if nicotine replacement therapy, which we knew was an effective treatment in other contexts, to test whether if that was offered over quitline the quit rates amongst people were were better. Equally, although the quit line already delivered some counselling, there was evidence from other studies that more proactive, more intensive counselling in which quit line advisors contacted people again and gave them counselling over a prolonged period of time. There was evidence that that was more effective. So we wanted to test whether adding eyes with those interventions to normal quit line care made a difference. Mm We we thought it was particularly important to do this in the UK because in England there's um, already freely available or available at low cost support with stopping smoking um, that smokers can get through their local stop smoking services and that can either be face-to-face counselling or drug interventions. It was possible that you know the interventions delivered through a quit line could make a big difference or it might make no difference in the context of a country where smokers already were quite well supported to stop. Sure. Um, I should probably mention the participants here. I mean, how were they recruited? Um, How did they break down? Yeah, participants were recruited amongst people who contacted the smoking helpline or quit line by telephone. And they had to be people who wanted to make a quit attempt quite soon, within the next month or so. And they had to be over 16 years old. And so presumably because they were contacting the quit line, um, they were quite motivated to, to give up smoking already. Yeah, 
really any motivated quitter who fitted our enrolment criteria was offered trial entry by quitline staff. So you, you randomised these people to these various arms of the study. What did you find? We tested out the two interventions, offering nicotine replacement therapy or offering more proactive counselling. And we found that neither of those interventions made any difference to quit rates six months afterwards. So rephrasing that, amongst smokers who were motivated to stop, offering either nicotine replacement therapy to them or offering more proactive support via telephone to them made no difference to their rates of stopping smoking six months later. Mm. Did you expect to see that? Um, no. We, um, we thought that if people were offered nicotine replacement therapy, then it would be used and it would make a difference to their, um, their quit rates because there's such strong evidence that when people use NRT, it makes a difference to quitting. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I was less sure about whether or not the proactive counselling would make a difference because there's less robust evidence on whether or not telephone counselling makes a difference to people in terms of smoking cessation rates. Um, but, you know, I thought it was more likely to have an effect than not. And um, you said that people were offered uh, nicotine replacement therapy. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were actually using it. Yeah, it was a pragmatic trial and we were testing out the offers of the two interventions We knew that if people used NRT, it should be effective. What we didn't know was if we offered them vouchers for NRT via a quit line, whether or not they'd access and use the access the vouchers and collect NRT. Mm -hmm. We found out that of the people who were randomised to be offered NRT, about 70% received a voucher. Some people weren't allowed to have vouchers because of potential contraindications. Sure. And we also found that of those people who were allocated a voucher, around 70% remembered receiving a pack of NRT in the post. And we've looked for explanations as to why there weren't higher cessation rates in the NRT arm. And from our data, it looks like the people who didn't receive a voucher for NRT and couldn't access NRT in the trial, it looks like those people made greater use of their local stop smoking services and accessed more face-to-face interventions and also were more likely to receive other drugs for smoking cessation such as renoclin. So, so in summary we feel that people in the NRT arm of the trial did ask for NRT and generally did receive it but that the motivated smokers in the other arm of the trial made more use of other interventions and it's possible that these face-to-face interventions had the greater effect. Um, that's an interesting finding. Now, obviously, uh, offering vouchers and things through QuickLine has an associated cost. It would seem from your trial that these extra interventions wouldn't be worth the extra money. Yeah, I mean, that was the decision that the um, Department of Health in England came to. Um, when they saw the um, emerging results of the trial. Mm. So, I mean, is there a bottom line for this research? It's very uh, specific to quick line in the English NHS. How much more widely applicable is the findings? Good question. This trial is only the second 
to have investigated the um, the likely effects of offering nicotine replacement therapy um, through a quit line. The earlier trial, which tested this out, um, was conducted in the United States in an area where I'm pretty sure there weren't readily available face-to-face stop smoking support interventions. Um, and that trial found that NRT made a, a difference to smoking cessation rates. So I think our findings are most generalizable to populations served by quit lines who already have access to stop smoking interventions. Great. Well, um, Tim, thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm really pleased that you're interested in the study. And that research is available on bmj.com. Now, Mabel Chu finds out how to deal with requests for emergency contraception. I have with me in the studio Indu Prabeka, who is subspecialty registrar in sexual and reproductive health at Liverpool Community Health in the UK. Indu is here to talk to us about emergency contraception, which is the subject of her therapeutics series article in this week's BMJ. Indu, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Oh, hi. Emergency contraception. Now, let's take a case scenario of a young woman who's come to you fairly anxious because she had sex last night and the condom broke, but she knows she absolutely cannot get pregnant. What are the options available to her, she'd like to know? Well, she's got three options available as of date, uh, which includes... The levonorgestrel, which is the progestogen, the conventional morning-after pill, which has been available in the UK for quite a long time, and the newer morning-after pill, which is the ulipristal acetate, which is available as a 30 milligram tablet. The levonorgestrel, um, which is marketed as levonel, is available over-the-counter, and, of course, the copper intrauterine device. What about Marina? That's a progesterone-only IUD. Can that be used as emergency contraception? Thank you for that question, Mabel, because this is one of the most frequent questions that I've been asked. Um, So far, it's never been tested as an emergency contraceptive and hence, at the moment, should not be used as an emergency procedure or an emergency IUD. It's the copper coil that's been validated as an emergency contraceptive, and hence, if a woman opts to have an IUD, it's got to be a copper IUD. Okie doke. Now, how do they work? Well, including ulipristal acetate, the two oral formulations work by inhibiting ovulation. And the copper IUD works in two different methods i.e. they prevent fertilization and they can also produce an inflammatory reaction on the endometrium and thereby can prevent implantation. Okay, now she is absolutely certain that she doesn't want to be pregnant and wants to know how effective they are. How do you respond to that? Right. Um, To start with, obviously, we need to make an assessment whether she really needs one. And obviously, that would include whether there was any background contraception used. And in your case, in this this scenario, obviously, she had used just condoms, which were split. Um, And following a thorough assessment, we can tell her that up to about 85% to 95% protection is offered by levonorgestrel 
depending on how many hours she is since her index incident of unprotected sex. However, with the newer Yulipristal, we believe that it's more effective than the levonorgestrel. I have to be a bit guarded with that response because we do have a meta-analysis to support uh, that the newer pill is at least as equally effective as the former one, the levonorgestrel, but we've got an extended window of efficacy with the newer one. Okay, and what about the IUD then? How effective is that in comparison? The most effective in terms of emergency contraceptives are definitely, undoubtedly, the copper IUD. However, it's got its own limitations depending on where this patient is because the availability of the IUD is currently limited by time, the expertise needed, and the equipment needed in a GP practice setup. And of course, comes with its own complications. Okay, well, let's cover that in a, in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Indu, your article contains a very useful diagram which shows estimates of the number of pregnancies expected if a thousand women are at risk. That is conceivably something you might want to show somebody. Can you explain what the figures are for that very quickly? Yeah, sure. With efficacy at its best, we predict one pregnancy with a copper intrauterine device, five pregnancies with ulipristal, and approximately 10 with levonorgestrel, while a 1,000 women had taken a method of emergency contraception. And this is, of course, following one episode of unprotected sex. Okay, and what if they had none at all? No emergency contraception, no morning after pill? When... Well, this is what I meant when I said Mother Nature is actually supportive towards women. If 1,000 women had had completely unprotected sex and um, used no emergency contraception, we're talking about 80 women getting pregnant from that index incident of sex. Okay, well, that's very useful to know. Now, before you make any recommendations or start prescribing, what are the issues you'd like to consider or ask this patient? Um, We've actually included a small tips for patients and tips for healthcare professional box in the article. And to start with, a healthcare professional should make sure that there is no risk of already implanted pregnancy for two reasons. A, we can't use ulipristal if there had been a risk of pregnancy. And B, to get an IUD inserted in the presence of a pregnancy, implanted pregnancy, is uh, technically illegal. So we need to consider the presence of a pre-existing implanted pregnancy. If the woman in front of you thinks there may be a chance that she could be pregnant from unprotected intercourse a few weeks earlier, what would you do in that instance? Ideally, nothing should be offered. But if somebody is anxious enough to feel that at this point of time, this particular incident of sex needs some kind of emergency contraception, in which case they are unsure about previous episodes, possibly levonorgestrel is their only option. 
Okay. And if the uh, possible previous episode was, say, more than six weeks ago, might you do a pregnancy test? Of course, certainly, because pregnancy test kits at the moment are fairly sensitive that they can pick a pregnancy at three weeks. But if it's within the three weeks and there is a risk of pregnancy, then your counselling should emphasise that levonorgestrel can be used because it doesn't disrupt an implanted pregnancy we don't know with regards to ulipristal and hence should not be used and obviously an IUD could not be used. Thank you. Now, let's say you've excluded any chance of an implanted pregnancy. What next to consider? Right, we ensure that there is an absolute need for emergency contraception because some women might approach us with a question or with a request for emergency contraception just for one combined oral contraceptive pill, in which case it's not needed. As long as she has taken the pill packets correctly and missed just one pill, she may not need emergency contraception. In a similar way, she may not need emergency contraception if a progestin-only pill was delayed within 12 hours. Um, I mean especially Sarazet, which is uh, wherein a delay of 12 hours is acceptable. Okay. Now, let's say there is certainly a, a, a high risk of pregnancy with this lady. Are yep. there un- any other issues you n- might need to consider before prescribing anything? Well, we would always recommend that as healthcare professionals, we always stick to basics, stay methodical. We would like to consider her medical conditions because the new ulipristal acetate and, of course, levonorgestrel cannot be used in significant um, liver problems. So we would like to know about her medical problems and whether she's on any medications, any drugs that could potentially interact with the oral methods of emergency contraception. Okay, now apart from liver disease, are there any other contraindications? Ulipristal is a progesterone receptor modulator and hence, theoretically, it can interact with women on large doses of oral steroids and obviously um, the, the formulation has got some lactose in it and hence lactose malabsorption problems um, could be a potential contraindication. However, I recommend that you leave such cases to the experts. Okay. And any drugs that could potentially reduce the absorption of ulipristal, i.e. Uh, H2 receptor antagonists, drugs like omeprazole, and um, could reduce the efficacy. Uh, and hence, we wouldn't recommend using ulipristal in such conditions. So you'd opt for, uh, or you'd recommend either levonorgestrel or an IUD in those instances? Yep, absolutely. Okay. okay. Now, what about contraindications for the IUD? A proper sexually transmitted infection risk assessment is essential in such women because the complications would certainly include um, infection, i.e. pelvic inflammatory disease, secondary to insertion of a copper IUD. So in addition to a routine medical history and medical history and medicines or drug history, um, we recommend that 
this is an ideal opportunity to make a STI risk assessment in such women. And presumably you would also want to discuss issues related to ongoing contraception. I would say this is the ideal situation because women would have started thinking about having regular contraception and this is the time when we can emphasize on that. Uh, I normally tell women that no human being plans for sex tonight. So we are just human. So it's better to have some kind of regular ongoing contraception. And if women choose to go for what is mentioned as quick starting or bridging, they can start combined oral contraception or progesterone-only pill, including the implant, straight away. Okay, if somebody opts for the IUD as emergency contraception but says that they would rather not be on it long term for ongoing contraception, how would you handle that? The recommendation is we wait until these women manage to see a proper period or if there is no uh, period that could be, you know, if we are unsure of the bleeding pattern, then we recommend a pregnancy test in three weeks' time followed by which the copper IUD can be removed. And oral contraception started, if that's her... Um, yep, whatever method they would like to, yep. Terrific. So the issues to consider are whether she has an implanted pregnancy already, yep. what her risk of pregnancy are with this particular episode, yep. whether there are any relevant features in the medical history or her drug history um, or any other contraindications, as well as um, her risk of STI and need for ongoing contraception. Those are the main issues. Okay. Now, having gone through all of that, she'd now like to know what the side effects are. What are the things she might have to put up with, with the different options? Okay, with regard to the oral methods, i.e. levonorgestrel and ulipristal, no serious side effects have been recorded so far, which is nice to know. So they are very safe medications. And However, about one-fourth of women can experience nausea and headache. Now, thankfully, vomiting is relatively uncommon and happens in about one in 100 women. And we recommend if there is a voluminous vomiting within the first two to three hours of taking the pill, we strongly emphasize that they come and come back and see us again because they might need to be reassessed for redosing the medication. Now, what about adverse effects, side effects or precautions with the IUD? The IUD, we always warn them that it is known, it's a well-known feature that IUD can give them heavier periods or longer periods or irregular periods. But it does settle down in vast majority of women anywhere between three to six months. However, with regard to the actual procedure of insertion of IUD, we have to warn patients about the small risk of perforation of the womb and pain during the procedure. In women, who opt to continue it as a regular ongoing method of contraception, we encourage them to check the threads periodically because one in 20 women can experience a spontaneous expulsion of the IUD. And of course, the advice would be that if a woman misses a period uh, after any form of emergency contraception, they ought to have a pregnancy test and be reassessed. 
Of course. Okay, well, that's a very useful rundown of the three sorts of emergency contraception available in the UK, the IUD, levonorgestrel, which is available over-the-counter, and Ulipristel. Indu, thank you very much for joining us on this BMJ podcast. And again, that therapeutics article is available on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll hear about research on prescription of antidepressants in dementia patients and how to deal with a pregnant woman who's exposed to a child with a rash. Join us then.